Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon on the book of Revelation. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to ask you for a favor. I know that many of you listen to our sermons on some type of podcast player, like Apple or Spotify. If that is you, it would be great if you take a minute to leave us a rating or review. I know that it might seem like a small or inconsequential thing, but it really can make a big difference. Why? Because every time you leave a rating or review, it helps our sermons be heard by more people. People who have the potential to be impacted by Jesus through the preaching of our church. This actually happens. I can think of people right now that have helped who've had an eating disorder, struggles with their in-laws, and sadness from a miscarriage. These are real people that have reached out because they've heard one of our sermons online. So while leaving a rating or review might seem like no big deal to you, it can be a big deal to those that helps hear our sermons. So again, if you're listening to this via a podcast player, please take a minute to leave us a rating or review. Thanks for listening to this sermon. I hope that it'll help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. You know, I, I, we haven't talked a lot about this as we've moved through the book of Revelation. But what we're moving to is that there's this ultimate victory where there will be no more sorrow or no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. And the one I've been thinking about recently, no, it says no more tears. And I wonder if we'll shed happy tears. That's what I've been thinking about recently. Like it says no more tears, but I feel like like that, like God will have to stop me because I'm, I'm an emotional crier. And so uh, no more tears, all of that. The, the struggles will be gone. We won't have to, in heaven, someday, talk about how to serve people who have unique and uniquely difficult struggles. And today, what we get to look at is really this this scene of what that experience will be like. A lot of what we've talked about in the book of Revelation is really heavy, right? Like we've talked about some heavy things. And I think it's important that we talk about these heavy things that we've talked about. But today we get this, this, this lightning, you know, like the, the air is going to kind of come into the scene. We've talked about the punishment of God. We've talked about just recently the way we need to communicate the hard truths of the Bible. We've talked about the lies of Satan, which pull us away from the worship of God. And, and now we get this, this really beautiful and I would say fun uh, passage of scripture to look at. Now as we move into this, I want to remind you of something that I, that I maybe haven't so overtly reminded you of in the last uh, several weeks, maybe the last month or so, uh, and that is the point of the book of Revelation. I talked about this a lot as we started our movement through the book of Revelation, but now I, I want to say it again because I think it's so important. The point of the book of Revelation is to encourage Christians who are struggling with outside pressure and internal rejections of truth. Let me say it again. The point of the book of Revelation is to encourage Christians who are struggling with outside pressure and internal rejections of truth, godly truth. And as I said, as we started this endeavor of studying our way through the book of Revelation, we feel all of that in our kind of American church today. It's churches who are leaving truth just behind, just without real hesitation, and there's more external pressure on the church uh, more negativity towards the church and about the church than, than really ever in our nation's history. And so this book stands to encourage us, to challenge us, to remain faithful 
despite it all, even if it means death. And as I've said it in a a much shorter version, the point of the book of Revelation is to inspire and encourage us to live for Jesus when it gets really, really hard to live for Jesus. And this passage helps us with that in a couple of ways. And it also shows us that singing is a part of the eternal experience of God's people. And in doing that, I think it should compel us to sing a little bit more passionately when we join together. So last week we talked about these three characteristics that help us avoid falling into uh, embracing the lies of Satan through the influence of political and religious leaders. They are patience, faith, and wisdom. And I think a part of what helps us to have those characteristics is remembering the future that God, through his son Jesus, has offered us. You see, it's hard to have patience, faith, and wisdom if your eyes aren't on a better eternity. If you're staring at just the bad stuff that you're dealing with now, then it's going to make your patience run out quickly, your faith be weakened, and you won't even search for wisdom. And so our passage, in the words of Robert Mounts, says, he says this, in order to keep before his readers the ultimate reward for their endurance, the author of Revelation intersperses glimpses of final blessedness among his presentations of judgment. And today we look at one of those. Here is an interspersed glimpse of our final blessedness. And the goal of it for John, as he is inspired by God, is to just kind of have in front of us what we have to look forward to. And here is how it begins in Revelation 14.1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. In Revelation, so far, it appears that Mark is connected to a mark being on a person is connected to where their loyalty lies. And so with this in mind, the 144,000, where do you think their loyalty lies? It lies with Jesus. If you remember to what we talked about last week, there was this mark connected to a beast. And what did that say? The mark was, I don't think, literal, but it shows that the allegiance for these people was with the beast, and who was the beast speaking on behalf of? He was speaking on behalf of Satan, and so ultimately, the mark represented an allegiance to Satan, but these people who are here are people whose allegiance, their devotion, is towards, is with God, with Jesus. They are Christians, People devoted to the God of the Bible. Robert Mounts again says, the destiny of every person is determined by the mark that person bears. That's really important, right? And Revelation, being an apocalyptic book, it really paints that in black and white, and I think the rest of the New Testament does too. You're either team Jesus or you're not. Your team Satan is how Revelation would say. Your team Jesus or your team Beast and Satan. These are your choices, and it will determine your eternal destiny. But Jesus isn't called Jesus here. He's called 
the lamb. And this is an important idea. This isn't just, you know, John picking a synonym off of thesaurus.com and saying, well, what else could I call Jesus? He calls him the lamb because he wants you to constantly be remembering certain things about Jesus. It's an important term in the book of Revelation. This title is used in important junctures in the book of Revelation. Revelation 5, there's this incredible scene where the lamb is worshipped and everybody is surrounding him and we'll see that idea in our passage again today and so again the title lamb in revelation 7 the lamb is able to open the seven seals that demonstrate god's judgment in revelation 12 it is said that the lamb triumphs over satan or people triumph over satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and last week I talked about how people who are Christian have, Christians have their name in the Lamb's book of life. That's in Revelation 13. And so as you move through the book of Revelation, John is interspersing these scenes of, of heaven to say, look what you have to look forward to. But also, I think as he's inspired by God, he's using the title lamb throughout in order to remind you of what allows for you to even look forward to this eternity in the first place. And that is the work of Jesus. He is the lamb. What does that mean? It means that he was spotless. He was perfect. He was sinless. He did everything right and everything in a godly way. He did everything perfectly. No sin was found in him. No spot is found on him if you use the metaphor. But then he is able to die as the sacrificial lamb, something that would have been so common to the Jewish readers that would have read the book of Revelation. He was able to sacrifice in order that their sins and our sins might be taken away. And so John calls Jesus the lamb in order that we are constantly remembering that we haven't just been given this eternity by happenstance or by our good works and great effort, not because we were on the right team or of the right nationality or ethnicity or race. It's not not just because of something we've done or because of who we are it's because of Jesus the lamb this eternity is given by him and the work that he did on the cross side note that I thought was really cool here just a quick um it's not even a tangent it's like two sentences but uh, in Revelation 13 1 we see this picture of Satan standing on the sand and here we see Jesus standing on the rock or Mount Zion. And, and what it seems to remind us of is like the parable of Jesus where he talks about two people. One guy builds his, his life on the sand or his house on the sand. And, and what happens when the rains come down and the floods come up and the rains, you know the song, maybe some of you 80s children's kids, uh, right? Uh, the house comes tumbling down. And then there's this other one where this other guy who builds his house on the rock and the rock is Jesus and his words and and when the rains come and the floods go up like what happens the house stands firm and here we have a picture of that where we are reminded that, that we bear one of two marks and if we bear the mark of the beast if we bear the mark of satan then it's all going to come crumbling down for us but if we bear the mark of jesus then we stand on the solid rock now, there's some debate, as with all of Revelation, on who the 144,000 is. I covered this debate already when I preached on Revelation 7, 1 through 8. You can go back and listen to it. I'm going to skip right past the debate and just tell you that I think the 144,000 are best understood as a representative of all 
Christians, of everybody who is bearing the mark of the Lamb, are part of this 144,000. I believe that that means the past and the present Christians. That's you and me if you're a person that believes in Jesus for your salvation. I think you are one of the 144,000. And so we have the 144,000. We are a part of that. Revelation 3.12 describes it this way. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God. There's a mark. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. We'll get a new name. But this is us. And so here it is. There's a picture of what we will experience. There's a picture and there's a sound as it turns out. Listen to Revelation 14, 2 and 3. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. Then I, the, or the sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, it's interesting because it's the only time in the book of Revelation that John both sees and hears. I mean, I'm sure he hears things, but he doesn't tell us about hearing it later. He says, I saw and I heard. And he hears these really kind of unique three things. He hears the sound of rushing water. He hears thunder. And then he hears the sound of harpists. And, and so what I want to do is, is we're going to play just 30 seconds of a sound because I think this is meant to demonstrate something of power and beauty and all of that. And I don't know if the sound will be beautiful, um, but uh, we're going to turn on the sound. And maybe you could close your eyes and kind of picture here uh, the hundred and four all Christians, all Christians of all time gathered together and the sound isn't, it's just going to be water, but maybe you could feel a bit of the power that John is trying to demonstrate that he felt in this vision. Go ahead. When you close your eyes, where'd you picture being right there? And you just yell it out. The ocean, anywhere else? Just the ocean, everybody at the ocean, everybody together at the ocean. I pictured kind of being on a, like a boat when you're going real fast a little bit with the wind in my hair. Uh, but we all, we all pictured being in an ocean. Now we could play thunder and you would close your eyes and you would feel like being in a thunderstorm. Man, I've seen some good ones in Sun River through the years. I saw a crazy one in Minneapolis once in a hotel window. Like you can feel that, right? In fact, you know, my, you, some of you may not have heard this story. One time I was outside doing a baseball lesson and a thunderstorm was coming in. And my boss, who was the greatest boss ever because he didn't care about anything, but uh, this was not the moment where that was a good quality in a boss. I'm outside. We got this metal backstop. I'm, I'm doing a baseball lesson and the storm's coming in and 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 we got this kid you know and his dad and I come in on Clint this you know like 
I don't think we should be out here because I ain't gonna get it done. That's kind of how Clint would respond to me. Uh, like, just you're fine, uh, like that. And, and so I'm out there and, and it gets, starts pouring. I'm looking at the dad and the kid. I'm like, you guys want to be out here? And they're like, no. So we, we come in and it's like, honestly, within at least minutes of us coming in, boom, lights go out. I'm like, we just got hit by lightning. We got hit. It turns out it was a breaker about a block away, but you felt, you felt this, this thing, right? Like, and so like, that's the, like, that's what he's getting at here. And then the other one, the harpist, right? Like, like when you close, if we played loud, like harp playing, right? You picture yourself in like a symphony hall, I would imagine. And, and, and have you ever just experienced music that, that just, it, it captures you, you know? Um, and I don't think that happens with the normal concerts we go to, but when you have like symphonic music and it's, it's coming out of the right speakers, it, it just, it gets you in some way. It, it brings you in. And so what he describes here, I mean, an ocean or a thunderstorm or a music hall, he is saying there is something great and even powerful about what he all of a sudden hears. We could have played all three of those at the same time and taken it quite literally, and, and we would have been like, well, this is a mess, right? <laughs> like a harp and an ocean and some lightning, like our thunder, I should say. Like that would not be so pretty. But, but he's, he's demonstrating the power of what he is experiencing and and what is the sound it's christians singing before the throne and the living creatures and the elders and if you remember the scene jesus is on the throne with the father and around that you have this group of weird angels um like i mean they just got ain't probably like higher up angels in the hierarchy of angelhood uh and and they're around it with their weird eyes and their legs and all this and then on the outside of that you have these 12 elders who probably represent the nation of is christian leaders um and, and you know connected to the 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 um the the, the 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 patriarchs and uh the apostles and then and now here there's this addition that's magnificent and it's all people who have been redeemed through the blood of the lamb and john as he hears it and as god inspires him is like what describes it what's powerful enough to demonstrate to people who will read this next week and two thousand years later it's like the ocean and the thunder and the sound of lots and lots of harps. It's us singing. And it's meant to say in eternity there will be this beautiful picture of God's people singing like the thunders roar in worship of their God. If you've ever been, you know, there's something about a large group of people all in unison singing to God together. I've seen it, uh, I've told you this not that long ago, but I'm going to use the same illustration, but when we went to Promise Keepers, remember Promise Keepers, and we were at the Kingdom, and there's like 55, 60,000 men singing, and there's something really powerful about that. I actually think this is one advantage that big churches have over small churches uh, is that uh, we sing, and I hope there's some power in it, but it's not quite the same like as, as lots and lots of people being together. I think we have some advantages over big churches, but this is not one of them where the voices is like, 
boom, you could turn off the speakers, right? And it just, it's like the roof goes up when people, and especially when it's not just emotion, but when it's sincerity causing the voices to rise, there's a difference in that, and it's powerful. And that, for John, he says, hey, now look, if you, this isn't all we're going to do in eternity. If you're like, we're just gonna sit around singing, that's not, the, that's not it, but there will be moments, clearly, where we just gather around the Lamb and we sing, and, 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 and it's just powerful. It's just powerful. And what's so cool here for me is, is that it says we sing a new song. This is normal language in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 96.1, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Psalm 98.1, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Psalm 144, 9 and 10, I will sing a new song to you, my God. On the ten-string lyre, I will make music to you, to the one who gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant David. And what's interesting about all these is that they're connected to being delivered, deliverance. These people have been delivered by God. David specifically in the end, like they've been, you know, like an army's coming and they're going to be killed and God delivers them. He, he keeps them safe. He sees them through. He gives them victory. And someday in eternity, we will have the ultimate victory where there's no more of the problems that we've already mentioned and none of the problems that we have. Like we're not gonna have to worry about things anymore. Everything is going to be so right and so perfect and so good. And it's going, the response to that is that we are going to sing a new Song And it only makes sense that it's going to be a new song because it's going to be a new experience for us, right? The songs that we sing today, while we may sing into eternity, are not going to be good enough to express what we experience and feel and know when we get to the other side of eternity. You see, we live in the, the current, uh, we live in this, currently live in this, this experience of already but not yet, as it's been described before. We have already experienced in many ways the salvation of our God, but we haven't felt the fullness of that that we will feel in eternity. We have been saved, but we haven't realized the fullness of our salvation. We've tasted the goodness of God, but we haven't feasted at his table God has come to dwell with us and in us, but we haven't gone yet to dwell in his perfect presence. We've experienced salvation, but we haven't experienced the fullness of salvation, but someday we will. We'll feel the completeness of the work of Jesus, the redemptive work of Jesus, and guess what? We'll need some new songs to sing. Notice that we as Christians are the only ones who can learn this song. Why? Because no other creatures have experienced salvation. No animal, no angel. Only we can experience the reality of being sinners who have been saved by Jesus and his grace and his blood. It's only us who have been redeemed in this way. That's the word it uses here. Only we can sing this new song because only we can experience salvation in this way through the redemption that came through the blood of the lamb. It's only us. And so we will sing a new song. This word redeemed is translated from the Greek word for bought. It's actually the same word used in Revelation 13 for, uh, for people not being able to buy if they don't have the mark of the beast. That's quite a different usage of it, right? But it's a very simple word that means to buy. 
But in the New Testament, the, the writers use this word in order to describe something really beautiful and something really powerful, something that, that in fact, as you, I'll read in just a second, could be like a category for salvation and things that fall under salvation. The Gospel Coalition says this, redemption means to secure the release or recovery of persons or things by the payment of a price. It is a covenantal legal term closely associated with ransom, atonement, substitution, and deliverance, thus salvation. And so sometimes people will talk about the redeeming work of Christ and all of these other categories just fall underneath that for them. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 7.23 says the same thing. And what is the price? The price is the blood of the lamb. The price is the blood of the lamb of Jesus who died on a cross so that we may be bought back. I don't think this means that we're bought back from Satan as sometimes is pictured that Jesus walked up and said, here's a bag of gold, you can have me, but we've been set free. I think there's a better way to say it from our sin and from death and from the consequences of our sin, all of the consequences of our sin. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He has purchased us from our slavery and set us free and made it so that we can spend eternity with him where we will sing a new song. I don't think it's a, an unintentional, you know, word to be used here. He's saying we will sing a new song because we will know how great it is to be redeemed. The Gospel Coalition goes on to say that redemption, this word, refers supremely to the work of Christ on our behalf, whereby he purchases, purchases us, he ransoms us at the price of his own life, securing our deliverance from the bondage and condemnation of sin. The New Testament speaks of Christ's saving work in this way frequently. There's this old adage that says he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. He redeemed us. He bought us. He purchased us. And what's so great is that while this word could be like a slavery word, right? We become his object. We become this thing that he owns. If you follow the lines of the New Testament, he buys us and then he adopts us. How beautiful is that? He purchases us from this terrible taskmaster of sin and death and Satan and the work that he would do in our lives. And then he has the grace to call us his own, to call us his children, to allow us to live with him for eternity. He redeems us, and so we will sing a new song. And by the way, this is part of the reason that I think we should sing a song now. And sometimes I think we should sing new songs because we experience the work of God in our lives and a natural and eternal expression of that is that we pour out our hearts to God through song. And I think as our experiences change throughout history, maybe we should write, I just thought about this this week, maybe we should be writing more specific songs about the work God has done in our lives. Maybe we should write our own songs that we can sing to him when nobody else is listening in my case. I've done that. I've sat with a guitar, written a couple lines, and thought this just expresses, this expresses what God is doing in my life for what I'm thinking about right now. The world We'll probably never hear those songs, but God will because he's redeemed me 
And a natural expression of that is for me to lay on my back sometimes with a guitar on my chest that I barely know how to play and to think, man, if I could sing something to God right now, this would be it. Song will be our eternal expression of worship or one of our eternal expressions of worship. And so if you're one of those people now that's like, I don't really like to sing. I don't want other people to hear me. Well, you need to change. You need to do that differently. You need to sing now because you'll sing in eternity. A few weeks back, I said, you need to find a way to serve God and to do work for God now because we'll do that in eternity. Our lives, we should do our best to align our lives in every way, really, with our eternal experience. And part of that is singing songs to God. I was going to say that people often complain when we do a new song, but maybe they shouldn't. Um, but I'll leave it. And then it describes Christians. And I think these descriptors are so important. Revelation 14.4 is the first. And by the way, this passage is totally uncontroversial right up until this weird kind of verse that comes out of nowhere seemingly. I'll give you a quick explanation of it. I'm not going to talk about it too long. And then it's going to put as part of this description of what Christians are like. And I think that it's very important as we finish here today to recognize this description that is given to us. And this, if you're a Christian, if you've been redeemed, if you've been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, then this describes you right now. And so you need to ask Is my life and my efforts aligning with this description that I've already been given? The first one is the strangest, hardest to understand, but the rest are pretty easy. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. So some people think that this is symbolic of of purity, like in a sexual way. Um, Now, I think that this is a a problem because it would come out of nowhere. Like, (laughs) where does it say people need to be celibate? Like, that's not a biblical concept. Like, that just comes out of nowhere. Some would say, as I just alluded to, that that this would be very strict. Like, if you're celibate, then you will you're going to have a better place in heaven. There's like a special group of you know eunuchs, as Jesus talks about in one place, And, and and so like like. Those are out there, and this gets argued about. But let me just say that I think it's clearly a metaphor for avoiding idolatry. If you read through the entire book of Revelation, you'll see that Rome specifically, but nations who are against God uh, because of their idolatry, they're referred to in terms of idolatry, not idolatry, idolatry. And so it makes sense that this language of purity, of chastity uh, would would then be a representation for remaining pure and serving God alone, not giving in to idols. In fact, in the Old Testament, Israel is spoken of as a virgin unless it lapses into idolatry and then it's referred to as a harlot. Uh, and so these are kind of the states in which Israel kind of goes back and forth between. In 2 Corinthians 11, 2, uh, it says, I promise you to one husband, this is Paul talking, to Christ so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. Revelation 21.9, this is an angel describing God's people against the backdrop of, of these kings who are committing adultery. It says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And so here's the first description, I think, of Christians. We worship God alone. We need to be people that worship God alone. We don't worship self. We don't worship money. We don't worship 
you know, fame, fortune, power, all of the things that the world sometimes worships, we worship God alone. Now the rest are pretty straightforward. Listen to four, verses four and five. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. One. They, purchased from a, they were purchased from a man, among mankind and offered his first fruits to God and the lamb. That's two and three. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. So listen to these. We're just gonna hit them quick and then we'll be done. Ready? Christians follow Jesus wherever he leads. There's a really high percentage of, Christ, of people in America that claim to be Christians that don't follow Jesus anywhere he leads. These people, according to the New Testament as a whole, and this verse specifically, are not real Christians. Christians are people who follow Jesus. If Jesus asks you to do something through his word, through the Holy Spirit's leading in your life, if he asks you to do something, you're a person who does it. Does this mean we 100% of the time always do everything Jesus asked? No. We sin, we mess up, we don't do it. But these are descriptors in apocalyptic literature where it's very extreme, right, of what we ought to be like as Christians. We follow Jesus. Mark 8:34. then he called to the crowd, uh, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. There is no greater statement maybe in the Bible that says when you are a Christian, you follow Jesus. Matthew 19, 21 is another one. Jesus answered to this rich young guy, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Is he saying that every Christian must sell everything they own? No, he's saying you must fully devote yourself to me. That's what it's required. That's what Christians do. Christians are redeemed. We talked about that. They're bought. It's another emphasis on that word. We'll skip over it. Christians are the first fruits of God. This is a reference to a gift or an offering, which means that we are set apart for the worship of God. We should be living our lives for the worship of God. Romans 12, one through two. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You should be aiming for a life, a mind that is transformed that leads to a different life. Your life should not look like everybody else's because you are fruit, you are a gift to God and you should be living for him. The Bible says that we are set apart for God. Christians don't lie. Now this may demonstrate that Christians overall are truth tellers, that we try to avoid telling lies, that our lives and our words are you know, driven by truth. And that is true, right, of Christians. We should be people that tell the truth. Jesus himself is referred to as the truth and we you know, should be telling the truth as Christians. But it also may refer to the fact that Christianity is true. Romans 1.25, describing people who have rejected God, say they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. As Christians, we hold to the truth and ultimately we will be found to be right. And finally, Christians are blameless now this is hyperbole we are not blameless only jesus is blameless but because of what jesus has done we are blameless we have been forgiven for our sins and as a uh, extension of that we should be doing our best to live blamelessly 
1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Hebrews 9, 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences, consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? We've been cleansed so that we can live in a clean way. That's the story of the New Testament. And so we are blameless. And so what should we do with all of this? I want to quote Robert Mounts once more. As difficult as the future may be, a future that might be filled with persecution, with internal rejections of truth and outside pressure, as difficult as that might be, there remains the joyful prospect of soon standing beyond this sphere of suffering on the mount of the Lord and singing with the innumerable multitude of the redeemed the song of salvation. And so we live as Christians now, even when it's hard. We do our best to be blameless. We do our best to be set apart. We do our best to only worship God. We do our best to be people of truth. We do our best to live for Jesus now, even though it's hard, because someday we will stand around the throne and we will worship Jesus through song. Let's do that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, what a beautiful passage, Lord. Frankly, God, it's hard to to preach, you know, week in and week out about um, your punishment and justice and this, I think your intention in this passage, Lord, was to offer us this, this, um, this moment where we can, we can look and think about how great it will be. And I pray that as we've done that this morning that you have worked in our hearts and, and God, that you have hopefully whispered in our ears that, that there are things that we can do differently. I pray that for all of us. And for some of us, God, I think it would be that, uh, that we would, for some people, I think it would be, God, that, that they maybe need to be redeemed and that they need to give their lives to you, that they need to recognize that there is no way for forgiveness. There is no way for a great eternity apart from you. And, and maybe, God, this morning they would choose to embrace the lamb as their savior And then for others of us, Lord, maybe we need to be reminded of how great of a thing we've come to in salvation, that we have been purchased, that that Jesus, you've done this incredible work on our behalf and you've moved us from the sand to the rock and you've you've, you've marked us, God, uh, with your seal, a seal that will ultimately allow us to have your approval when we enter into the pearly gates. And so maybe some of us just needed to be reminded of that today and I pray you do that. And maybe some of us, Lord, need to start singing. We need to sing remembering that this is, this is part of our eternity. And maybe we feel awkward, you know, with the person next to us. And maybe they can hear us. And maybe we don't know the song as well as we'd like. But, but just help us to sing anyway. Because you have, you have redeemed us. And, and we need to sing. And we'll sing, God, uh, throughout eternity. And, and maybe, God, for, for some of us, it's just remembering that because of all the that, Lord, we, we need to live differently We need to live better. We need to be truth tellers and we need to, God, be focused on your worship and your worship alone and we need to look different than the rest of the world and allow for you to transform our minds. We need to be sold out for you, Jesus. Whatever it is, I pray that you would do it in us, God. Let this not be one of those sermons that, you know, we walk out from and and, and people say good job or bad job, but let it be used by you. Please use it, God. Just don't just let it be, but use it, God, 
in order to make a difference in each and every one of us. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.